Good morning. Thank you for that warm greeting. <laughs> well, it was okay. Um, but I did want to start this morning by reading our text. It's a brief one. And it's from 1 John, which is we're continuing our series in 1 John. It's 1 John 1, and it's 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. The word of the Lord. We have a couple of liturgists out there. I heard thanks be to God. By the way, I'm throwing my hat in the ring for being the church liturgist. <laughs> Thank you. It was, it was nice to hear from Josh, and, and a lot of my sermons could have be reflections, too, on our recent experience, which I'll share with you in a second, and similar to, similar to the way Josh felt about the trip and sort of the new eyes. Because about a year ago, I retired. That lasted about nine months. And since then, I've gone back to work part-time as the CFO at Surge. This is the missionary organization that was started by Jack and Rosemarie Miller many years ago. And in that beginning stages of that organization, I was actually on the board at one point. So I've sort of, in God's infinite wisdom and sense of humor, I sort of come full circle back to the organization and the church that I started with back in the 70s. It's been a great time. And part of the reason it was a great time, I happened to time this, not my timing. But I timed it in such a way that I included their company, we call it the company, the company retreat. Um, that they hold, they try to hold every four years, but it kept getting postponed. So suddenly it was on the horizon for me, who just started. And we went, <clears throat> it was actually in Spain, a real hardship for the new guy. But we went to Spain for, for we ended up in Spain for three weeks, two weeks of which we were at the conference. And then we traveled after that. At that conference, we were reunited with um, friends from decades ago. It was, it was amazing. In addition, over the years, we've been sort of the surge Airbnb when people come in town, because we're only about a half mile from the headquarters. When people come to town, they come and stay with us, and we get to know them a little bit. Sometimes we don't know them at all, which, in fact, happened a number of times at the conference. We had people come up to us and say, oh, thank you so much. We stayed with you. And Nancy and I looked at each other and go, we had no recollection of these people staying with us. <laughs> so, but we did reunite with a bunch of friends. I bring greetings from... We had dinner with um, KJ and Schulte and Leon and Felix, so we ended up having dinner with KJ, and then she took over, and then we had dinner with Schulte. But it was great to get reunited with them. We had, we had a chance to sit down with the Pole Rajas and just had a great time with them at dinner one night. And, and uh, th that's just a few of the people we got to meet and, and get to hear their stories. It was really quite a thing. And I was joking with Ed similar to what Josh did. I was joking with Ed this week. I said, I should just get up and do a slideshow of our trip to Spain and not really preach, but just share some of the things we saw. 
I'll be doing a slide from the trip. Don't worry. I'm not going to go into a full-scale slideshow this morning. It's our second week in First John, and the theme, as you could probably tell from the text this morning, is about darkness and light, and from the songs. Thank you for picking those out, Kim. And the darkness in First John is the general sort of description or meaning of that word is that it obscures your vision. That's pretty simple, right? Darkness obscures your vision and hides the truth from you. While we were traveling, this is a very mundane example of that, but while we were traveling, it required, um, I think we had four different places we stayed, which meant for a person who might have to use the bathroom in the middle of the night, it's pitch black, and you're now trying to, you, you wake up and you go, wait, where, where was the bathroom in this room? And, and so you find your way in the dark, sometimes unsuccessfully. One of the hotels, I actually tripped over a thing that was in the front of the bed. Um, but no injuries. And this is sort of a mundane example of, of being in darkness. Because the darkness that's in First John is, a, is much more dangerous than that. It's, it's the failure to recognize a perspective on life that reflects on your own createdness your moral wandering, and your tendency to despair of anything changing in your life. That's the kind of darkness we're talking about. It's the darkness of centering your life around yourself and much more life-threatening than tripping on the way to the bathroom. Now, I have a tendency to focus on the dark side of things before I get to the light. I'm going to be doing that this morning. Nancy. Um, pointed out a recent cartoon in the New Yorker. Two birds were talking. I hope some of you saw this, but it was great. Two birds were talking, and the one bird says to the other one, he says, I'm just trying to figure out how to chirp without being so darn happy. <laughs> my wife said that will be my epitaph. <laughs> That's a little harsh, but it's warranted, to be honest. So I will talk about the light, but not, not without first identifying the darkness we're trying to not be overcome by. And that darkness is part of our world. It's part, and, and we, you, know, you sit through the service, you've heard about it already. There's a darkness to the world. I don't have to tell you, the, it, it seems out of control. The war, there's war raging, which almost is starting to take a back page of the other things happening. The pandemic still persists. World hunger is real. We don't, we don't see it very often, but it's real. The economy is a mess. Our climate seems destined to be unlivable. Just sort of makes you want to pull the covers over your head and not get out of bed in the morning sometimes. And then you've got to consider the darkness that comes from our own disappointments and discouragements, our confrontation with all of our moral defects, our inability to change. Have I gotten you depressed enough? because that is part of my role. So it's valid, though, in the face of that, to ask, where's the light? And what does it mean to walk in this light? So let me talk first about the sort of, it's in your notes, if you have them. And I'm going to try to follow them. I made them loose enough so I could fit almost anything within them. But, but one of the first things we need to do is to sort of fix our expectations the time frame and the means with which we expect to be encouraged by the presence of this light. During the conference in Spain, one of the speakers was Eric McLaughlin, who 
and, and along with his wife, Rachel, they're both doctors. They work in a hospital in Burundi. And if you look it up, Burundi is the poorest country in the world. He introduced me to the world you catastrophe, which some of you are going, I know some of you. Lawrence, you're saying it. How could you not know that word, Rick? You had a, you're college educated. I took a class in, in Tolkien and mythology. Um, I'd never heard it before. So he introduced me to it at the talk, in, in the talk he gave, which was an amazing talk. It's a word that actually that Tolkien himself coined. It means it's that moment in the story when everything seems lost. And in that moment, something unexpected and fabulous arrives. And that dire situation becomes a glorious and unexpected resurrection. It's Frodo throwing the ring in the fire. And, and suddenly, everything turns around, and good wins, and evil loses. It's the kind of story, I don't know about you, but you love that kind of story. I mean, I might like watching dark things sometimes, but I, I almost need something to recover from those things. And we like these kind of stories where, where good is actually portrayed as actually being the victor in a situation. And, and Tolkien knew it. He describes it as follows. All of a sudden, I realized, this is Tolkien, I realized what it was, the very thing I've been trying to write about and explain, the sudden turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. And I was there led to the view that it produces its peculiar effect because it is a sudden glimpse of truth. I think it's fair to say that what Tolkien shares as a glimpse of truth is the light of 1 John that we are talking about and called to live in. It's that deep desire we have to believe that good will win in the end and that evil will not. And our life will just not end in death as the punctuation at the end of a meaningless life. Another favorite person of mine is Frederick Buechner. Um, he has a book called <clears throat> Telling the Truth, the Gospel as Tragedy, Comedy, Fairy Tale. He explains these three ways of viewing the gospel. First is a tragedy, an honest sort of sorrow and suffering because we're lost and unloved. This, you have to sort of face that before you get anywhere else with the gospel, that you're lost. Then comes the comedy. Abraham and Sarah have a child in their old age. Promises are kept that seem so unlikely. Lazarus is raised from the dead. And God becomes incarnate and dies for us. This is the, the folly of the gospel. The fairy tale that Beekner describes is that Jesus dies, but his resurrection means that goodness defeated evil and light conquers darkness. Tolkien takes all that and relates it to the gospel as well. So we talked about eucatastrophe. He says, he, he identifies two eucatastrophes, goodness coming out of a catastrophe, basically. One was the incarnation of Jesus in response to the catastrophe of man. And the second was the resurrection in response to the incarnation and the death of Christ. The story of the gospel is a story that out of our out of the darkness of our wretched condition and the sad state of our own hearts, God came from both the light emanating from the child of lowly birth and then returned from his execution to announce that death lost and life had been resurrected. 
It is the resurrection, the eucatastrophe, that eucatastrophe that proves that good will some win someday. This story establishes Jesus as entering the world as the light that points to the truth. So I did promise that I wouldn't just be all darkness. I, I do want to talk about the, the light and its impact on us to affect a, a different kind of way of looking at the world, framing the decisions we make, the way we laugh, the way we cry, the way we create and participate, right? And all of that, we're participating in making things new. I wanted to focus on two qualities of that light. And I'll ask you to put up that picture now, if you can. Part of our time in Spain included a visit to Madrid, where we visit the Prado, a museum, as you probably know, an art museum with a vast collection. And my eye, of course, because of who I am, <laughs> was drawing. How many people know what this is? Yeah, it's Sisyphus. And the famous story of Sisyphus is that because of all the evil, the bad stuff he had done, Zeus relegates him to, for his entire eternal existence, pushing a rock up a hill, that's what you see, and then at the end of the day, when he gets it to the top, the rock rolls down, and he comes and pushes it up again the next day. Um, hard to imagine a more meaningless existence and a worse punishment. Then um, Albert Camus steps into the picture and, and wrote a, a story called The Myth of Sisyphus. And he said this, the workman of today works every day in his life at the same tasks, and his fate is no less absurd. He's saying no less absurd than this. But it is tragic only at the rare moments when it becomes conscious. So you're not conscious. You're OK. Camus claims that when Sisyphus finally acknowledged the futility of his task and the eternity of it, he became free to realize the absurdity of it and accept it. And that probably made him happy, according to Camus, that this is it. This is all it is. I mean, you know, I, I could ridicule the view, but when you think about it, it makes sense sort of logically from somebody who refuses to accept any other way of looking at the world. Because the gospel presents another way of looking at the world. The message of the gospel in the Christian perspective stands against this assessment of declaring that life itself, and declares that life itself has meaning when it's seen from the perspective of the light of the incarnation. This means that to participate in the love of God in Christ gives meaning to the most ordinary things of life. This kind of light is described in Psalm 36. Let me read this. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of viewings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of light. In your light do we see light. When that light arrives in the incarnation, the life lived within that light becomes meaningful, and we don't have to accept this dismal picture of Camus and Sisyphus, accepting absurdity as the only way that makes sort of sense of life. So that's one aspect of it. It gives meaning to life, the life that we see through Jesus Christ. The second important aspect of the life, <clears throat> of the life is that it leads us somewhere. It leads us somewhere, ultimately. 
And the destination is not just a distant vanishing point, but a resurrected life that contains an un unimaginable newness. The Bible says that all things will be made new. Without this promise, the first thing we talked about sort of becomes void. It becomes a canoe-like ending, and all we hope for will come crashing down to a pointless end. Except the story doesn't end there. It resolves in, in resurrection, which for me exceeds my imagination. The philosophers admit it. If this is all there is, if when you die, you rot, <laughs> sorry, and when the sun dies, everything goes to nothing, and nobody will even be around, then it makes no difference whether you're a nice person or an evil person in the end, because that's all a matter of opinion anyway. In other words, if life is all there is, life becomes pointless. Oddly, and I, when I thought about this, I thought, oddly, that's actually the message of the gospel in some ways, because what the gospel says, if you start with a life based on you, you'll never have perspective that will get you out of the darkness you're in. Life won't mean anything until you get sort of beyond life itself and say there's something more valuable than life itself, this existence. The gospel demands right at the start that you do something about your self-centeredness, which has gotten you down anyway. This is where Jesus comes in and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in John, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We have that prophecy of Isaiah and repeated by Matthew in relation to the birth of Jesus. The people when walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Luke says, to shine on those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. So if, we, if we're looking at it from the sort of, you know, these two eucatastrophes, one gives meaning in some ways, one gives meaning to life, the second takes death off the, off the table, it says. And your life has meaning, and it's just not meaning leading nowhere. It's leading somewhere. Now it's time to get to Monday morning. And I'm going to try to share what I think it means personally to walk in the light. As I was writing this sermon, I was listening to music, which I always do, and a John Prine song came on called Long Monday with these lyrics. <clears throat> it's going to be a long Monday, sitting all alone on a mountain by a river that has no end. It's going to be a long Monday, stuck like the tick of a clock that comes around again. And, and so, you know, I started thinking, well, how do you relate this? Okay, you're going to be here on Sunday, Monday morning. How does this impact my life? How do I walk in this light? What does it mean? And, and I think the first thing to, to think about, to remember, is the point of perspective. We are, are mortal. I hope that's not a big surprise to you. And we are somehow not able to see the end of all things. If we were, we wouldn't need faith and we wouldn't need God. What we can hope for is to catch a view of what awaits, to see snatches of light coming into our world. And it does not come to us by the strength of our moral rectitude and self-effort. I think one of the clearest messages of the gospel is that our weaknesses are, or our cracked and broken lives are not the obstacles to walk in the light. They are the means. They're not the obstacles. They're the means. Leonard Cohen, in his song, The Anthem, 
says, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And, and, and our passage sort of brings that up as well. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and we're separated from the purpose and meaning of life in Christ and are walking in darkness. Grace comes to the humble and a broken spirit and a contrite heart are the sacrifices. And they're the vehicles by which grace can enter and change our perspective on how to live. I, I, I heard this somewhere and I couldn't figure out where, but it says, grace doesn't sell well. You can hardly even give it away because it works only for losers and no one wants to stand in that line. And that's so true. We just, we don't want to hear the story that we were broken and need grace. We want to hear, we want some instruction on how to fix what's broken in our lives. Humility does not come easily. For now we see only a reflection in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So for now, we will catch glimpses, and sometimes they're strong. Sometimes they're not so strong. Sometimes they're sad. Sometimes they're, they bring joy. But we'll see, we'll see those glimpses of, in, in, in moments of great meaning. Um, Beekner says this, here and there, even in our world, and now and then, even in ourselves, we catch glimpses of a new creation, which, fleeing as those glimpses are apt to be, give us hope for this life and for whatever life may await us later on. So what are these glimpses? I, I thought about the mission trip that Josh was sharing, and I remember being on them often when I was younger, and how, when you came back, it, it wasn't, it was this sense that, wait, we're actually participating in something that's very meaningful, for one thing. And it's not just a high from being with other people. It's a different sense of life has a purpose that I'm starting to see. And those trips have affected me my entire life that I went on. I've been to Guatemala with Matt, and uh, it was such a good time, and it still is such a rich time in my memory in Amsterdam for a mission trip with our team in downtown for a couple of times. and So I, I really have a fond memory of those things. And, and you came back from them thinking, that's what, sort of what life should feel like. It should feel like that for us. And it's not, I, I really do believe it's not an emotional high. It's, a, it's an encounter with what's real and what should be real. And I, I can't leave... Um, Darkness alone for too long. But in the glimpses we have, we also have a glimpse of what it means to mourn. There are actually glimpses of the light. We don't think of them that way, but being in a dark place doesn't mean you're not in the light. It's the light off in the distance beckoning you to keep walking towards it or maybe crawling towards it. George Herbert has this great poem. He says, though I fail, I weep. Though I halt and pace, yet I creep to the phone of, throne of grace. The only way to truly fail is not to weep. I was thinking of this in terms of our trip to Spain, and, and 
the ama- one of the amazing things to me in the trip was to, to hear from all these missionaries, and invariably, they all shared great sorrow. They, these, the, these are not the victorious saints marching on, you know, wings of angels. These are people with real problems. And, and as I sat down at the table with some of them and we were praying, I, I said to them at the end, I said, this has been so encouraging. You guys are a lot like me. I know that's not going to help you, but it helps me to think that. You are not the, you know, your people flawed just like we are, and you have concerns. And often those concerns were about their children, children who have grown up and, and abandoned the faith, people who are sort of, they, you know, because a lot of times they're sending their children away to schools, and it's a hard it's a hard, these are hard decisions these people are making. And so after a, a bit of that kind of sharing, one of the children of one of the missionaries got up and said, I, I just want to encourage you. I'm one of those kids. For 10 years, I would have nothing to do with what my parents believed or the gospel or anything. And now he's back and serving at Surge. And to me, that was a glimpse of like, that's not a story for every kid. There's obviously, they were still praying for a lot of kids, but the encouragement of seeing that glimpse of light conquering darkness was, was just, I don't think any, there was a dry eye in the place. When this, and he shared for like 20 seconds. It wasn't you know, a long, drawn-out story. He just said, I was there for 10 years, and I'm here now. Be encouraged. So what am I talking about? I'm t- saying... There's an appropriate place. You can't. You don't have to cut the Psalms out of your Bible to think that lamenting is not something a Christian does. David does it all the time. What he doesn't do, you could argue, is despair. Although there's a couple of verses in there that might put you on the edge, but but that's what we're being told that we have the right, the privilege, of telling God the deepest we don't knows that we have in our being when we lament. And they're part of, as I described the story of, of the mission trip and of our trip to Spain, they're part of that story because that's the body of Christ sharing in those things. What else, where else did we see? I think we see it in the ordinary things of life when we open our eyes. We see it when we look up and appreciate the the backyard that we have that we get to sit in and, and watch the garden grow. We, we see it in watching people grow up and, and being part of this church. One of the things I did this past year was teach the class on, on the uh, sacraments. And I, I, one of the things I emphasize with the kids is appreciate the fact that you're growing up with people and they know you. One, of the, one thing I pointed out was my relationship with Matt and Lisa, which has been over years, we, we did their marital counsel, and we spoke at their wedding, and now I'm teaching their child about the sacraments. And I said, you just got to know that that kind of relationship is so important because that's the body of Christ sharing in the growing up of people. And I just think we need to, we need to deepen our appreciation for the ordinary things that we do that we might forget. Somebody once said that, only miracle is plain. It's in the ordinary that groans with the weight of glory. It's in the ordinary that groans with the weight of glory. It's those simple things we're doing. And if we took a different perspective, perspective granted to us by the light that we see, 
we might begin to see life that way for us as well. It's not easy. It, it's, not, it's not normal. You know, it's supernatural, and we've been given that access to ask for that. So I'm going to end with a story because it just it was so appropriate to the service because a lot of what we did, you know, entertaining people in our home, it was all great, you know. It was really good. It could make you feel good about yourself. You know, you know there's people coming up to you, thank you for having us at your house, et cetera. That's great. But the one that really made an impact on me was not one that, was, that came to us from a successful thing or an act of righteousness or however you want to describe it. This one family couple came to us and said, you guys were instrumental in our lives. And we had the same look. We both said, what are you talking about? We had no recollection of being instrumental in your life. We had no, we couldn't recall. We, we honestly were like, okay, we have to go to dinner with this couple and find out what the heck they're talking about. So we did. Um, and, and they were, in fact, I mean, we knew them before we got to the conference. So it wasn't they were unknown to us. But we had no idea that we had impacted their lives. And so we're thinking, what great thing. I didn't, there was part of me thinking, what great thing. We didn't have them in our house. They didn't stay with us. I don't know what they're talking about. It turned out that their first Sunday in this area, he had come to seminary, was attending New Life Church in Glenside. And I've shared this story before. And I'm not going to go into any detail. But let me just say that it was at a moment in our life, Nancy and I, in our marriage, that was um, not the most pleasant time and precarious. And the church, this Sunday was the time that the church chose to have us come up front and to pray for us. And they said, we remembered that, we were there that Sunday, and, and when you shared, we were like, this church is, these people are sharing up there. And they said, you had your arm around Nancy, and you were talking, and, and we're like, First of all, I don't remember. It's probably in shock, but I don't remember that at all. But for them, it was pivotal. They said, we saw the church in a different way because of that. We saw the church as, what church does this kind of thing? You know, it was so open about this and so supportive. And, and so they, from that, they came to new life. And eventually, you know, I'm not going to take credit for them being missionaries, but they've been missionaries their whole life. And what called them to the gospel is not that they were strong and that we were strong and nice people and, you know, lent them our home or something. No, it was that we were cracked and broken. And that cracked and brokenness was being repaired by the body of Christ through Jesus Christ. And that was the change. That perspective changed these people. That ability to be the person who confesses their sins, because this is exactly what the passage says. If you don't confess them, if you keep them in, you're doomed. Just you're doomed. It's not going to work. It doesn't work that way. So as the body of Christ learns that lesson, they grow in their ability to minister to each other and to be the gospel incarnate to those around them. That's what matters. And I, I, you know, I don't know how to end this sermon. I, I could keep talking about grace, and, but it's still a mystery to me in some ways.
and Marrow and Robinson. So now I'm quoting my three favorite people all in one sermon. This is great. I could probably not say more, she said, I could probably not say more than that life is a very deep mystery and that finally the grace of God is all that can resolve it. And the grace of God is also a very deep mystery. Why we are the people who he's called his children and said, I love you when we didn't deserve that kind of love. I don't. I don't get it sometimes. And so he's called us to live in that light because he's given that light freely to us through Jesus Christ. I'll ask the worship team come come up and I'll close us in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that we do not have to be resigned to meaningless lives that end in death. We thank you that because of Jesus, who he is, the life that he came to live for our sakes, the fact that he gave up his own life for us, and the fact that he, was, he, he came back from the dead to show us that death does not end our lives, does not become the, the vanishing point and nothing matters after that. Father, we don't understand all these things as much as we'd like. Some of them are unimaginable to us, but give us the imagination. Give us the ability to invest in the ordinary things of life, deepen our gratefulness and our thankfulness, and in that, may we be the feet of Jesus Christ in this world. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Let's stand. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Be thou my vision. Near the 